Scientific information is complicated. Discussions of methodologies, statistical analyses, and the wider implications of findings can all be difficult for the layperson to navigate, which is where science reporters enter the picture. Those who do their job well can help an audience understand why a study or a set of findings is important in a way that can make the data accessible, helping audiences better understand the world around them. Science journalism is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell of Media, Journalism and Film. Our guest today is 538 Science reporter Christy Ashwanden. Christy, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Just to get the conversation started, how is it that you became a science reporter? Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, I didn't set out to become one, that's for sure. Um, I started off actually in high school, I wanted to be a doctor. And I think that was kind of a failure of imagination, actually, because I got really interested in science. And I took this physiology and anatomy class that was really interesting to me. And so anyway, then I, I went and shadowed some doctors and realized that being a doctor meant hanging out with sick people all the time, which wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. That sounds really cruel. And I don't mean it like that. Uh, but I was really sort of interested in the geeky side of science, you know, rather, you know, sort of the interesting science regarding medicine rather than the practice of it. Um, anyway, and then I went to college, I majored in biology and thought I was going to become a scientist. Um, but the problem was that I could not find that one thing to specialize in, you know, when you get your PhD, you become uh, the world's expert on one tiny little thing. And it turns out that I'm a generalist. I'm interested in a lot of different things. And so I I kept sort of stalling to apply to graduate school because I wasn't sure what I wanted to study. And somewhere along the way, I discovered that there was this thing called science writing that I could do, that I could actually get paid money to look look at interesting studies, talk to cool scientists and write about it. And so um, that was sort of what set me on my way. So what what are the challenges of being a generalist rather than a specialist? Because we live in a world, especially in science, where people are specialists and you've chosen a different path. But that's what journalists do generally. They're they're generalists trying to report on specialists. So what what does that take for you? Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, you know, along the way I have develop some specialties. I mean, once I've written about something, you know, a bunch of times I start to develop, you know, some kind of base knowledge about it. But I think I actually serve my readers better when I don't know too much about a subject. You know, I'm able to ask the questions that my readers are going to be asking. And in fact, I will often, when I'm doing an interview with an expert or scientist, I will often sort of hold back. And oftentimes I will ask questions that I know the answers to just because I want to be able to get those quotes. And also I want to be sure that the person is talking sort of at the level that I want to be discussing things with with my readers. So what's been the hardest science story that you've covered so far? Oh, that's a really great question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. Um, (laughs) You know, I think I would say in terms of something that's been an ongoing uh, subject that I've covered for many years, I would say cancer screening, just because um, it's something that this, the evidence really is contradictory to what most people think. And so that's been really difficult to sort of get across and, you know, oftentimes sort of having an audience that's hostile to the message that I'm sending. Yeah, I, I, I'm really struck by the, the challenge of trying to tell these stories in health research, you know, when, when feelings run so high. 
Right, right. Yeah. People get very emotional and it's really difficult. I mean, I think the other thing that's very difficult about writing about cancer screening is that you have the story that many people tell themselves, which is that a cancer screening test saved my life. When in fact, a lot of these people, and you know, one of the issues is we can't tell on an individual basis, which ones, but a lot of these people are actually uh, victims of overdiagnosis. So they're being treated for cancers that would have never harmed them. And so what's actually harm feels to them like this great triumph of medicine. You know, one of the criticisms that gets uh, uh, leveled at science reporting and health reporting in particular is sort of the boomeranging nature of some some particular, again, health reporting, where one week a study says one thing and one week a study says something completely contradictory. How have you, as a science reporter, tried to navigate um, through that space? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I would say that um, my approach to this has evolved a lot since I started. You know, when I first started off in this this profession, you know, I did a lot of these studies, or I'm sorry, a lot of these stories that were based on a single study, you know, oh, new study coming out in science. This is exciting. Let's write about it. Uh, but over the years, I've come to realize that, you know, science is a process. It's not, you know, one answer. And so I'm pretty hesitant these days to write those single, single study stories. And in fact, at five 538, almost as a policy, we don't do stories that are just about a single study. I won't say that we never do, but if we're going to do that that story, it will always be putting that study into the larger context. And so I think that, you know, a lot of it is just recognizing that uh, uncertainty is inherent in science and science is sort of... Um, Brian Nosek, the uh, co-director of the Center for Open Science, told me once this thing that I think is really true, and that is that science is sort of a process of uncertainty reduction. And I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. And so, you know, you never completely eliminate that that uncertainty, but you're just sort of, you know, taking taking little parts of it away. And so need to be careful. And I try to be very careful not to present anything as sort of like settled or the final answer. Can you talk specifically about how you do that? Because I think a lot of the general public thinks that science and data are certain. Yeah. That when yeah. you see numbers, oh, yeah. when you see these numbers, this is this is actual truth. So you just talked about uh, how you're careful about that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think it's really important to put things in context. Um, so. Any particular study is very good at answering the exact specific question that it's being, you know, that it's asking. So, you know, in this group of study subjects subjected to these very specific conditions, this is what happened. Um, but the thing is, that's never exactly what we're actually hoping to answer. You know, we don't we don't care, like, did this drug work for the 100 people in that study? You want to know, will it work for me? And it's always a little bit of a leap to go from one to the other. You know, we can accumulate evidence, we can be more or less certain about things. So really putting things into context. And I think it's really important to also so note the caveats and and be sure to say, you know, what the uncertainties are. So I, I think you hit something that I, I always find a challenge when I'm when I'm looking at, at stories is, is the idea of how to how these uncertainties are communicated. I mean, you mentioned the idea of caveats, but I, I think a lot of times people are looking for the, the definitive statement about what this means, what this this result implies without the idea that there is is uncertainty associated with it. So. What, what suggestions do you have for communicating that uncertainty? It's really hard. And I'll just say that even when you do it, oftentimes people don't 
don't see it or they don't listen or they don't, you know, they sort of glance over. And there's also, um, I don't have this problem with my editors at 538, but, you know, there are a lot of editors that really want things to be, you know, serviceable. They want, what's the bottom line? Tell people what to do. And, you know, it's not to say just because there's uncertainty doesn't mean that we can't give advice and we can't, you know, at the end of the day, you need to decide whether to take the drug or not, whether to eat the food or not, you know, whether to do the thing or, you know, to make these decisions. And so we can, we can make those decisions, you know, based on our best knowledge at the time. And I think it's just a matter of understanding that, you know, just because the state of the evidence right now tells us that this is the right thing to do, you have to be open to new research and new evidence that may suggest that actually we've got it wrong and we need to do something else. Um, but, you know, you take what you know at the time and you put that together. So I don't think that it's a matter of just saying, like, we don't know anything and no one knows anything and you can't make a decision. It's more more like, you know, here's what we know right now and here's what we can do with that. And here are the uncertainties, you know, and there are a lot of things that we're pretty damn certain about, you know, smoking causes cancer. We know that at the same time not every single person who smokes will get cancer you know there's still some uncertainty baked in there at the same time we can be pretty pretty certain about these things you know your your comments make me, me think a lot about the, the the debates that that we hear recently about reproducibility in science and you know i th i thought i thought that was interesting that you talked about kind of almost a policy of of not reporting the single study result these days you know what's what's the message to, that we that to communicate to the public the idea that that there are challenges in thinking about reproducing scientific results and, and that this is just part of the uncertainty of process. How do we, how do we avoid that kind of definitive statement being made from the single study and, and put in the context that it may not be reproduced in some future work? Yeah, I think, you know, the first study that, that finds something is interesting. That's always going to be less definitive, you know, than having multiple studies. So in a lot of ways, the study that kind of comes on top of a bunch of other studies is actually more interesting because, it, you know, you're getting closer to certainty, right, than you are on that, that first study. So again, I think, you know, I think the big challenge here, and this is something I really still struggle with, to be honest, is, you know, helping readers understand that uncertainty is baked into science, that it's actually a feature of it. It's not a shortcoming. You know, and one issue that we have, and I, I wrote something about this, is that, you know, there are people who uh, seek to undermine scientific findings that are inconvenient to them or somehow against their best interests um, by, by sort of pointing out this uncertainty and saying, oh, we're not sure about this thing and therefore the whole enterprise is wrong. And I think we need to be careful that, you know, if you don't understand that uncertainty is a part of the process and that it's inherent and that, you know, every study is going to leave some unanswered questions, then you become sort of um, open to this kind of manipulation um, where people think, well, because we can't say with 100% certainty, we don't really know anything and it's all bunk and we need more time to learn more things. It's like, yeah, at some point we know enough to make decisions and make the best decisions that we can right now. Um, but this uncertainty sort of uh, fanning the flames of uncertainty can be used to delay action, and, and that's not a good thing. You, you made a, a, a comment at a conference where I, where I was attending a session you gave that, that statistics gives answers and probabilities, and the human brain thinks in stories. Yeah. So, right. mm -hmm. so what, what advice do you have for turning these probabilities, which all, and also the, occasionally the uncertainties, as you've just been describing, into stories that will connect to, to someone thinking about this? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, finding stories, finding ways to turn those statistics into stories is really important. Now, there you have to be really careful that you don't start, um, 
you know, just so stories are these stories that are created to like explain the data, you know, and so they, they perfectly explain the data. So it's, it's very easy to fall into this trap of thinking this is exactly how it is. So you have to be careful. But I think metaphors are really helpful. Um, finding something in everyday life. I mean, we deal with certainty, uncertainty in everyday life all the time. Um, and people are, are generally fairly comfortable with it. And so if you can find an example from everyday life, that that could be something that can be helpful. You know, this is akin to, you know, making a decision like this that you do in your normal life. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington with Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media, Journalism, and Films Richard Campbell. Today we're talking science reporting with 538's Christy Ashwanden. Christy, so I'm going to ask you a sort of different question, and this is partly on my mind because of a Facebook conversation I was having with some other academics where they were, they seemed very suspicious of talking to reporters. And I, in my past life, also did science and medical reporting. And uh, getting scientists to talk can be really difficult. Um, there is, There seems to be some suspicion on the part of researchers uh, about uh, reporters' possible misconstruing information. Um, I will admit that as an academic now, I don't like to give interviews ever, um, and which feels bad as a former journalist. So, so how do you, number one, navigate sort of those interactions with researchers or scientists that may be a little wary and sort of what advice might you have for journalists who um, want to, you know, thoughtfully engage with researchers and scientists um, about how to sort of um, create a fruitful environment for that? Yeah, that can be hard. I do. It's it's pretty unusual. But once in a while, I will come across someone who's really hesitant to talk. Lots of times just sending them examples of my other work will help. You know, I'll say here's some other. I'll send them some stories I've written so that they get a sense of, of the kind of writing that I do, and that often sort of bridges the gap where they feel like you know if they they read some of my previous work they'll feel like they can trust me. But I guess I would just say you know I do say this to scientists. You know, I'm trying to um, cover the science and explain it in the best possible way. I, I really want to get it right, and it, you know I need your help on this. If you choose not to help me here, like the chances of me getting it wrong really go up. And so if you're concerned that I'm going to get something wrong, tell me, like explain to me that thing that you're worried I'll get wrong so I can get it right. Following along those same lines, I'm interested in, there was a point where you wanted to be a doctor, you were interested in science, your undergrad degree was in science, but at some point you decided you wanted to write. So mm-hmm. what was the that doesn't happen to a lot of people interested in science necessarily. That's, yeah. So what writing's was, really what, hard, yeah. Yes it is. What <laughs> and science is hard too. What yeah. what what was the trigger for you? What what turned turned you toward being a generalist and uh, and a writer? Good question. Um so I was working before I made the transition to writing. I had been working at this biotech company and I was kind of bored of my job. And so sometimes I would escape and we had a, a library and the company library. They had new scientist magazine, which I had never seen before. And I quickly became addicted and these stories were so cool. And um, anyway, we, they hired the company hired a, uh, 
a guy who was in, tr- in charge of uh, like sort of public relations, writing press releases and things like that. And he started a company newsletter. And so just by happenstance, again, I think it was just because I was sort of bored in my job. I started writing a column for it and where I, I was sort of poke fun at the CEO. And I remember at the time we were trying to get a, uh, we had a, a lot of us that rode our bikes to work and we were trying to get like a, a bike shed where we could store our bikes during the day because, you know, anyway. And so I, I was writing columns on that and sort of, um, and the, the guy who, who ran the newsletter said, Hey, you know, you're a really good writer. Have you ever considered science writing? And I was sort of like, what's that? And then he said, well, you know, I've noticed you, you're, you're really addicted to new scientist magazine. You know, you could, you could write for them. And I was like, Whoa, wow, that sounds really cool. And in fact, the very first thing I ever published was in new scientist, true story. So I ended up, he told me about this. Uh, well, he told me he, he, he tuned me into the national association of science writers, which I have become, a, I've been a member of my entire career anyway. Um, but I ended up going to this program at UC Santa Cruz, a science communication program that really specializes in turning scientists into journalists and into writers. And so spent nine months there and that was, that was sort of it. Never turned back. Very good. You know, you talk about, uh, mistake. A lot of your writing is about mistakes in data, mistakes in statistics. Mm-hmm. So talk about some mistakes you see in, in that journalists make. Uh, when they write when they write about stuff, you've been doing it in a long time. You 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 know you you would know, <laughs> you would recognize yeah. the mistakes that journalists make, uh, and fairly common ones, I suspect. Can you talk? Yeah, I think one common one. Yeah, I think one common one is that people um, don't read papers; they just read the abstracts. So the abstracts. I mean, there's actually data on this. The abstracts can be pretty misleading, and there are oftentimes um, conclusions that are sort of put up in the, the abstract that aren't actually supported by the data, um, you really, you have to read, like I tell everyone, the first thing you should do is read the methods. Cause if you don't know what they did, you don't know what you can conclude because whatever conclusions you can draw and the general generalizability of the study will be very dependent on the methodology and how they did it, what they were actually doing. So you really need to know that. So that that's a really common one that I see. And then another one I think is just sort of not being skeptical enough. Um, and I don't mean like, look, I'm not playing gotcha journalism or anything like that. But I think that there's often, um, you know, this idea that science is so cool, which I totally agree with, by the way. Um, but, you know, a political reporter doesn't go in, you know, trying to promote politics or trying to promote a party or, or whatever. And I think as science journalists, we need to apply the same sort of skepticism. You know, my job is to cover science with warts and all. And, and you know, there are often, you know, science is done by human beings who are flawed like the rest of us. And so it's important that, you know, we're not cheerleaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love the comment you made in an interview that, that where you were saying, what kind of evidence might overturn what you were thinking about this yeah. now? Yeah. I mean, so, so that, that ties to that healthy skepticism that you mentioned, the idea that, yeah. that you could refute this assertion that's being made in research. Is there a particular story where when, when you, you know, when you found that kind of data that, that completely changed your perspective on the story? I have a recent example of this, actually. So um, at 538, we did a project on sex ed. And it was actually, we had intended it to be bigger than it was. We ended up just, I think there were just a few stories and we did a chat about it. Um, but I went in, so my my part of the my part of this project was to go talk about the evidence on sex ed, sort of what works and what doesn't. And of course, you know, the first 
problem that you run into, which is true of any kind of science, is, well, how do you define working? Like, what is sex ed trying to do? And that's where it's sort of like, oh, my God, this is going to be much harder. You know, this is not going to be an easy thing to do. Anyway, but I had known sort of going into it and had heard about research basically showing that abstinence-only programs weren't effective and specifically at reducing teen pregnancy and STDs and things like that. Um, but I sort of had this impression that that there were other programs that did work and were really, you know, shown to help with these things. And and so what I found when I went in and looked at the evidence was that it's actually really hard to measure whether these things are quote unquote working. Like just the 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 research problem of studying this is extremely hard. And so although it was true that that abstinence-only programs didn't seem to make any difference, like they really weren't making a dent in, in these things that people care about, like teen pregnancy and you know the onset of sex and things like this, um, these other programs weren't much better. Um, the things that quote-unquote worked still had pretty modest effects. And so you know what I really came away from this thinking is like, wow, this is a really tricky problem. And like maybe, you know, a school-based program isn't going to be the be-all and end-all of, you know, how we do these things that people are trying to do um, with these programs. And then you also have these problems with, you know, every school is different, every, every population is different. So it was just a much more difficult and tricky uh, problem than I think I, I understood going into it. Christy, you are credited, that is the word I was looking for, you are credited with creating sort of a Bechdel test um, for science writing. Could you explain what exactly that is and why you felt compelled to um, create this thing? Sure. So it's called the Finkbeiner test, and it's named after my colleague, Anne Finkbeiner. And this all started, it's actually all her, to be honest. I just was the one who sort of said, hey, we should really make this a thing. So Anne Uh, Yeah, Anne is a brilliant writer, and she writes a lot about astronomy, and she had had an assignment. Well, first, I guess I should back up and say that Anne and I uh, both blog at this group science blog called Last Word on Nothing, and that's how I know her. Yeah, and so anyway, she had written a, a post for Last Word on Nothing about how she had been assigned to write about a female astronomer, and she wrote this whole post about all the things she was not going to write about. She was not going to write about, you know, how she deals with with her childcare. She was not going to write about, um, you know, how she nurtures all her her students. She was not going to uh, write about. Let's see, this is terrible. I'm forgetting all the, the different parts, but um, she was not going to write about how she was taken aback at how competitive the field was. And basically, she she was sort of saying, I'm not going to write about her in a gendered way. You know, I'm done, you know, making this like, isn't this amazing that this person is both an astronomer and oh, my God, she's also female. Can you believe it? And I thought it was brilliant. And I thought, you know, these are really good good um, rules. We should we should just make this into a thing. And so um, I took what she had written and basically laid that out into rules and published it. And it sort of took off. And right around this time, um, the New York Times did this pretty famous obituary um, that mentioned, you know, she made a mean beef stroganoff in the lead, which was obviously, you know, this was a brilliant uh, physicist who had died. And so anyway, uh, that sort of helped it get some attention. Um, but I think the takeaway here is just really thinking about um, the ways that we as journalists can reinforce, um, you know, unhelpful uh, gender stereotypes in the way that we write about about people. 
And I think that this goes uh, not just for, for women, but also for men. There's a, actually an academic in the UK who did, I think it was a, a master's thesis using the, the Finkbeiner test, sort of based on that. And she had looked at stories in the UK. But the interesting thing was she also did the, the Finkbeiner test for men, so sort of flipped it around. And she found that um, things were just as gendered for the men, you know, where they were like described as really strong and all of these other stereotypes that aren't necessarily positive. And so I think it's something that we should think about, you know, regardless of the, the gender or other sort of identity groups that a person might belong mm -hmm. to. You know, you talk a lot of, you've talked about the idea of bias and object and objectivity being encouraged in science and journalism. And, and I'm curious how, how you would, would put the idea of, of discussions of bias and objectivity into a context that when we've, we hear a lot of allegations of fake news mm -hmm. or descriptions of reporting as fake news. So how, how, does, how does the bias and objectivity run counter to that? Yeah, so I think um, one of the important issues here is just to realize, I mean, we, we are all sort of um, vulnerable to motivated reasoning. Like, so if you really want something to be true, like you're very, you're very susceptible to be, you know, to believing things that are you know, made up to, to get you on board and vice versa. You know, if you're, you're also sort of primed to not like someone or not like something or feel a certain way. And so I think that we have to be really careful about this and always be asking, how do I know that this is true? What are the sources and things like this? I mean, I think in terms of um, getting my audience to believe that the things that I'm I'm writing are, are true and are not quote unquote fake news, um, it's hard. I mean, if, if someone is primed to think that global warming is, is a hoax, I probably am not going to be able to convince them um, because the things that I'm holding up as evidence may not be received as evidence on their part. Um, you know, if they are feeling that their talking heads, talking points are stronger evidence than my scientist's data, like there's not much I can do about that. But I think that we just have to, I mean, it's hard. It feels these days like like truth and, and numbers and all this are, feel a little bit impotent in these times. But I think, you know, in the end, the truth does win and reality is reality, whether we choose to believe it or not. And so you just have to keep going. Well, Christy, I hate to leave it there, but that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu, or check us out at statsandstories.net, and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.